Last year's cybersecurity executive order set an ambitious goal to improve the security of software the government buys. Now the White House is undertaking the difficult task of turning that into actionable guidelines for agencies. We get the latest from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, what should agencies expect now that these guidelines are long-awaited finally coming out? Yeah, well, the Office of Management and Budget plans on releasing this new secure software guidance for agencies within the next 8 to 12 weeks. And the guidance is based on some some other guidance from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, specifically a secure software development framework that NIST published in February, as well as a software supply chain security guidance book that the NIST put out as well. And Chris Russia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, is leading OMB's work on this new guidance for agencies. And he spoke at a March 23rd workshop hosted by NIST about what this is all about. This is about incenting the vendor community that's serving and selling to the U.S. government to start adopting this framework and specifically secure development practices. That means a culture change in agencies. It means a culture change in some of the vendor organizations themselves. And Chris Jerusha says people selling to the government, but the government also goes out and buys, we should say. And this is all motivated solely by solar winds and Log4j and that kind of thing? Well, those are certainly some of the high-profile examples of where the where agencies wish that perhaps they had better secure software practices in place in the first place. You know, SolarWinds was a software supply chain attack where the attackers were essentially able to inject malicious code into software that then went to thousands of customers, in, including nine federal agencies. And more recently, Log4j, a widely used open-source software logging utility. There were some discovered vulnerabilities there that affected agencies and private businesses alike. DHS Chief Information Security Officer Kenneth Bible said federal CISOs want to get a better handle on the integrity, composition, and provenance of the software their agencies are relying on. From my own experience with the Log4j, that composition piece kind of weighs heavy because of the the lack of visibility, particularly in compiled code of what where, where actually that vulnerability existed and some of our ability to just get our arms around it. It's something that we're going to be looking at and seeing pop up from probably here for, for years. Do we have to continue to have more and more endemic vulnerabilities or can we start to understand the composition better? And that's DHS's Ken Bible. I think I can smell a software bill of materials brewing somewhere here or baking in the oven, whatever metaphor. We're speaking with Federal News Network. Network's Justin Doubleday. And industry, of course, is the other half of all of this. What do they say about these new requirements? Yeah, well, they're giving feedback to OMB and agencies now. They say that clear guidelines around what they actually have to attest to is big. And that's a word you're, you're going to hear a lot as part of this process, attestation. What do companies have to prove as far as security when they're selling to the government, when they're selling to government agencies? Industry is uh, saying that the government should rely on existing standards and not build their own to the extent that they can. And they need to define those clear requirements for attestation, as I mentioned, and not make companies attest multiple times across agencies. That's something Henry Young, the director of policy at the Software Alliance, pointed out. It's important to think about, in this context, kind of the centrality or the consistency of an attestation so we don't have a situation where a company is attesting to any of the dozens of departments and agencies right, duplicating its work. And there you might look at the DOD, which has some programs 
its supplier performance risk system is centralized so different DOD components can use it. And I think that might also be something worth um, thinking about in this context. All right. So that's the industry talking to the White House. Is the White House responding to the industry so far? And what have they been telling it? Yeah, well, Chris DeRussia said that they really want to take feedback from industry and bake it into their guidance as much as possible. He said OMB's goal isn't to set up a new compliance regime, although part of this effort involves ensuring of course, that these companies are complying with these new requirements. But he says it's all about incentivizing secure software. There's also parallel work going on led by the Department of Homeland Security to, del- to deliver some new contract language recommendations that would require companies to comply with these secure development practices. So you have the CISOs, you have the procurement folks saying that they're working hand in hand here to really get after the secure software problem. Here's Zarusha again. What we want out of this is a clear, concise, and efficient approach to vendor attestation and federal verification measures. We really want to ensure agencies are doing this in the same way. At that event, did Darusha or any of them say how they expect this to work in terms of an actual acquisition? That is to say, is it the contracting officer or the contracting officer representative's job to ensure the compliance on the part of the software vendor? Or should the CISO be involved and other security people? I mean, how does it work in practicality? Well, that's the big question that they have to answer through this process, through the guidance that OMB is going to put out as well as the the contract language that I mentioned that DHS is going to propose to the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council on the anniversary of the Cybersecurity Executive Order in uh, May. And those, those are that's really where the rubber is going to hit the road in terms of connecting these sort of high lofty goals about security to actual measures that the government and industry can effectively implement. Yeah, because if, say, the functional manager that's buying the software for his or her program has to say, yes, this is what it does, we need it to do this, and it's correct there, then you would think the information security people would also be in part of that approval process and say, yes, it meets this requirement, too, because security is a requirement. Yeah, and, and you know, this is just one part of the process of, of cybersecurity, I think, uh, and cer- it certainly it's just one section of the executive order where, you know, you're having companies meet these attestation requirements, and a big question they have to answer is, or the government has to answer is, will they require self-attestation, a company essentially saying, yes, we're following this development framework, or, or will the agency actually go out and and do an investigation and figure out whether they met the framework in the development of the software, or will they hire a third party? That's another big question that OMB and DHS has to answer here going forward. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. 
my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com slash vision.
This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.